Good morning again. I invite you to take your Bibles and open to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, it is page 746. Page 746 in the pew Bible this morning. We had men's retreat. The Women's Renew Conference is coming up, and this past week was the senior retreat up at camp, and uh, I got more texts from Katrinka explaining their exploits this week, which was a lot of fun. Uh, people that they saw that we knew from other churches. Glenna got a hole-in-one on uh, hole 18 on the mini golf course, which is a hard hole if you've ever played the, the mini golf course at camp. But uh, encourage you, if you are of age and have the ability, it's a great opportunity to go up to fellowship uh, with other faithful men and women to be encouraged in the Word and to enjoy the campground. So next year, uh, those of you uh, who are able, I encourage you to participate and then something else fun happened this week. Uh, I was home for lunch and walking back over, and there was a, a truck and a trailer or a truck and a camper in the parking lot out here, and I didn't recognize it and had Wisconsin plates. And I walked in, and Pastor James was visiting with a couple, and it was Pastor Gardner's youngest daughter. So Pastor Gardner, I don't know if a few of you may have <laughs> remember Pastor Gardner, uh, but his youngest daughter, she, was never, uh, she wasn't born when he was here, but always heard stories about the church and about Horton, and they were uh, in Iowa visiting her sisters and a little get-together, and they were coming back this way and saw the Waverly sign and thought, oh, that's close to Horton. And so uh, it was fun to share some memories, and one point she was standing, looking out the front window, she goes, wait, didn't that house used to be, yes, yeah, that house used to be over here. And so uh, it was fun to reflect and to just hear some stories about her dad and Thankful for God's grace and his mercy and his faithfulness throughout the years. And uh, to think of the heritage and God's mercy in preserving that. So it was uh, a fun thing that happened this week here. If you found your way to Daniel chapter 9, I'll pray and then I'll read a portion of our passage this morning. Father, thank you again for your mercy and your grace. Lord, as we come to you, we come not as perfect people, but as broken people. Lord, people who carry the weights of sin poor choices. Lord, we carry the weight of guilt sometimes. We carry the weight of failure, of not measuring up in our own minds. Lord, we carry so many different weights, but yet as we come to Jesus Christ, we realize that those weights are cast off, and we find rest and peace in Him. For in Him there is grace and mercy and forgiveness Lord, help us to regularly do that, even as we have trusted Christ, Lord, to continue to to take those cares and those weights and to cast them at the feet of Jesus and to view them in light of the cross. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we think of this pattern of prayer that Daniel lays out for us, Lord, that this would become a regular pattern in our own hearts and lives as we come to you. Lord, help us to understand your word now, we pray in your son's name. We're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 9, but just the first part, Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Of course, Daniel chapter 9 is one large section, uh, but there is a very clear division in the chapter. Daniel's prayer in these first 19 verses, and then the response from the Lord in verse 20 on. And so this week, we're going to look at Daniel's prayer and the pattern that it is for us, of what Daniel's praying for and how he prays. And then next week, we will look at the answer of how the Lord answers him directly. 
But I'm going to read verses 3 through 6 for us by way of introduction this morning. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer, and pleased for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Those of you who are parents uh, with young children or parents who have children but are grown, it's amazing how your ears become attuned to hearing their voice and particularly their cry. Um, often in a group of parents or a group of moms, the moms will hear a baby crying or a child crying and they'll say, nope, not mine, right? <laughs> that phrase exactly. Nope, not mine. It's amazing how we can become attuned as parents to the cries of our children. Why? Because they are precious to us. They are, are, are our own, and we are called to care and to love them, and, and we do love them. And so one of those things is, is we know and we hear and we listen for their voices. Now, at certain times, those voices could perhaps become a little annoying. Um, in a group of people, mom, 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 hey, mom, mom, mom. Yes, I hear you. I'm talking. Just a moment. <laughs> or those cries turn from one of help to one of aggravation among siblings. We're in that stage right now with Nora. Um, Nora will be crying and her two older siblings will walk in and they will say, we didn't do anything. She's just crying. It's like, okay, we understand. <laughs> but you hear that cry. You hear that, that that loud noise, that crying out for help or to listen or in need, and instantly your ears perk up and you say, what is that? What kind of cry is that? Am I needed right now or is that a, that's just a squabble, right? But the idea of listening for a cry as a parent to a child because of our love and our devotion and our, our care for our children, we listen. I find it interesting that so often especially in the Psalms as we read this morning, but even here, that idea of crying out to God and God listening is that of a parent listening to a child. That as we cry out, the Lord hears us. He knows us. The example is used in John 10 of sheep and the shepherd. And the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. And just as the shepherd knows the cry of the sheep, and as we come here to Daniel 9 and we think of crying out before the Lord, of coming to him, Daniel is crying out to God in the midst of exile, in the midst of, of being away from the homeland. He cries out to God in humble prayer. And as you remember, as we've worked our way through the book of Daniel, it's really about God's sovereignty over all these human powers of his plan working out in the midst of human kingdoms. Now that's high level stuff. That is the moving and the manipulation and the, uh, the, the planning on God's behalf, on God's side, of all these large moving things. But here is Daniel, a single man, crying out to God, and he is heard. And that's almost a paradox or a tension. Here is God who is sovereign over all nations, 
causing them to rise and to fall. And he has this plan for the future. And you might think he is busy with that. We can't bother him or he won't listen. But yet in the midst of all this, Daniel cries out. One solitary man cries out and he is heard by God. What a comfort and encouragement to us that as God is sovereign over all nations, he still listens to the humble cries of those who seek him. And that's our big idea from Daniel 9, verses 1 through 19. The sovereign God over all nations listens to the humble cries of those who seek him. We want to be heard. We want to be known. We want to know that somebody is listening to us. And the amazing fact is God is listening to us. He does hear us. And as he is sovereign over all, he still has time to interact with us because God is sovereign and omniscient and all-knowing and he hears us. Even as he's working out the fate of these kings and kingdoms, he hears the humble cry of those who seek him. Daniel is heard by God. And as Daniel cries out to God, we see this pattern. We see this pattern laid out for us that is helpful as we come to God. We adore him. We humbly confess our sin. And then we faithfully ask for him to work in ways that only he can. As the nation has been in exile almost 70 years, Daniel, knowing the word of God and the prophecy of Jeremiah, cries out for God to be merciful for the sake of his name. So let's look here at these 19 verses to look at the content of Daniel's prayer and the pattern, the form of it, and how it can encourage us as we cry out to God. First, as Daniel cries out, we learn this, that as we come to God, we first adore God. We adore God. Chapter 9 contains this prayer and answer to God and answer directly by God to Daniel. There is not necessarily a vision or a dream here, but a literal angel speaking to Daniel, foretelling what's going to happen. That's the second half of the the chapter here. But in the beginning, we read of Daniel's prayer. It occurs in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Now there's a little confusion here. Is this Darius, like Darius the Mede in Daniel 6? But Darius was also used as a title. And looking by the fact that he's the son of Ahasuerus, which is another name uh, given to, to Xerxes, many believe that this is actually Cyrus. If you know your history, Cyrus is the one who allows the Jews to go back uh, to uh, Jerusalem, to the Promised Land, uh, to start rebuilding there. So there's some question as to the identity of this ruler. We have two pretty good ideas but we know it's following the takeover of the Medes and Persians. So the previous two chapters took place during the reign of Babylon. This event, however, takes place later, more than likely following Daniel 6, following Daniel in the lion's den. And Daniel cries out to God. But why? Well, he reads according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah in verse 2. This is the Jeremiah we know, Jeremiah the prophet. And Daniel is familiar with Jeremiah and his prophecies. He is known as the weeping prophet. If you know your 
your Bible, and Jeremiah prophesied to the city of Jerusalem and to the nation, calling them to repent, for judgment is at hand. And God told Jeremiah to do some interesting things, right? He told him to literally eat the book of the scroll, uh, to, to eat God's word in a sense. He told him to buy a plot of land because God was going to return the people. Jeremiah was known as a weeping prophet. He wept over the fall of Jerusalem. He was not received. Nobody was going to listen to him. But yet Daniel does. Daniel knows this prophecy here. And this is what he knows, the end of verse 2, that he is aware of the number of years that must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. What is he referring to? Daniel's referring to Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12 that say this, This whole land shall be become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So Jeremiah is prophesying about the fall of Jerusalem, and he says that this nation will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord making that land an everlasting waste. Jeremiah prophesies that they will be taken by the king of Babylon for 70 years, and then the king of Babylon will be judged. Hence the conquering by the Medes and Persians. And so Daniel is now crying out, asking God, these 70 years are almost up. Is the exile almost over? Are we going to get to go back to the promised land? If Daniel was roughly... 14 years old, 15 or 16, when he went into captivity, 70 years are almost up. He's around the age of what? 85, 86. He's an old man. And he is looking to the return to the promised land. And so what does Daniel do? Verse three, he turns his face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So he turns to God in prayer and not any type of prayer, but a prayer of humility. He pleads, pleads for mercy, and he, he seeks him. It's, a, it's an earnest desire. It's this repeated action, and he does so with fasting. He denies himself food, not to gain merit, but rather to spend more time praying, and he covers himself in sackcloth and ashes. This is a sign of humility, of suffering before God. It's a symbolic act that demonstrates that the one who is crying out to God has nothing to stand on. It, it's, it's communicating their position of humility before the Lord. It's a sign of mourning before God. And so he cries out to God. And he adores God. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He begins by addressing God by adoring him. The term adoration we often think of in a relationship of a perhaps a husband and wife, right? The, the husband adores his wife. The wife adores her husband. It's this idea of, of this love, this almost, I would say, infatuation, this, this looking longingly upon, of, of looking at their attributes and their their character and their characteristics, and, and loving them for, for who they are. This adoration for God, Daniel begins with, 
is focused on his greatness and his awesomeness. Now, this isn't awesome like, hey, awesome. This is like full of awe, awe-inspiring, like earth-shaking awesomeness. And then he describes God's covenant and steadfast love, his, his chesed love. It's this term that refers to this covenant love that God makes a promise and he will keep it. When he approaches God, Daniel is in awe of who God is, that he is one who keeps his promises. He is the covenant-keeping God. He's the covenant-making God, saying, you are my people and I am yours. Daniel references these things on purpose because God is not the one who has been unfaithful. God is not the one who has failed, but rather the nation has. Daniel begins by adoring God, directly stating how great and awesome God is. Daniel approaches God by describing his character and his acts, not because God has forgotten who he is or that he needs help remembering, but it's an act of worship. When we pray, it is far more than just asking God for things. And I think we shortchange ourselves when we only make it that. One of the things that we did in our youth group in Mason City is we would have times of, it was called popcorn prayer, right? Where it's, somebody begins in prayer and then it's just like one sentence statements. And we would encourage our kids not to ask for anything, but just tell God how great and glorious he is. For 15 minutes, short statements of, God, you are just. God, you are merciful. God, you are gracious. God, you are loving. <laughs> God, you are, you are holy. God, you are perfectly angry. All these attributes and all these characteristics of, of who God is. When we come to God in prayer, our first step must be adoration. Of adoring God for who he is. Because we need to remind ourselves that the one we're coming to is not like us. He is different from us. And that's a good thing. Because why would we go to somebody to do something that we ourselves can't do if they're just like us? If they don't have any power. Oh, our God is omniscient and omnipotent. Our God is, is everywhere all the time. He is awesome and great. He is faithful and loving. And Daniel adores God. But as we adore God and as we look at God in his character and then we look at ourselves, we realize, ugh, right? That, that's a proper response. You look at God, then you look at yourself and you go, ugh, that's gross. We're gross. We're sinful. We're sinful people. We have failed God and we fail God. I'm not saying we're, we're just complete you know, trash. But when you look at God and then you look at us in our activities and our action, we see how it pales in comparison. We are humbled. That's good. We need to re be reminded that we are not that important. You are not that important. I am not that important. God is important. Now, God loves us. We are made in his image. You are valued. It's this tension <laughs> that knowing that you are valued, but yet, as Paul says in Romans 12, 3, to not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. 
As we look at God, then we look at ourselves, we realize our own sin and how we failed. And Daniel applies this to himself, but also to the nation. And he, he incorporates himself into these words. He says, we have sinned and done wrong. We've acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and your rules. We see these four things that the nation has done. The nation has sinned, literally missed the mark. They have done wrong. They've acted contrary to God's moral standard. They've even acted wickedly. They've pursued evil and they have rebelled against the Lord's commands and his rules. That communicates to us that his commands and rules were laid out and they rebelled against it. The nation as a whole forsook God and followed after idols. They they followed after chariots and horses of false gods. And then Daniel contrasts, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. Daniel first adores God, but then he confesses his own sin, confesses the sin of the nation. And he does not divorce himself from the sin of the nation, saying, this nation failed, but God, I've been good. No, he incorporates himself with it. God is righteous and perfect and holy To you belongs righteousness, God. But verse 8, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, our princes, our fathers, we've sinned against you. We have sinned against you. To you, God, belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which you've set before us by his servants, the prophets. What Daniel does here, from here down to verse 15 He contrasts God's character and then the character of the nation and himself. God is holy and righteous. The nation followed after sin, after false gods. And God is completely just in judging them for their sin. For he is perfect and they are not. And he has clearly communicated to them. Verse 13, Daniel says, As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. In the law of Moses, particularly Deuteronomy, the end of Deuteronomy, there's the blessings and curses that Moses gives. If you follow God, you will be blessed. If you do not follow God, there will be cursing. Hey, guess what the nation did? They didn't follow God. They are reaping what they have sown. It's not that this was a big secret. God laid it out for them very clearly. And Daniel is confessing his sin, confessing the sin of the nation. Verse 15, and now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Daniel implies that God has saved them from Egypt and yet they have rebelled against him. In the Old Testament, the greatest act of salvation was the deliverance of the nation from Israel. In a sense, it foreshadows our own salvation through Jesus Christ, right? The nation... The nation of Israel is in Israel. They are in bondage. They are in slavery. They are under an oppressive hand of the Egyptians. And God brings them out. Why? Because what they have done? No. But because of his own choice, his own pleasure, his own grace, his own mercy. He brings them out. He helps them cross the Red Sea. He provides for them in the desert. In a sense, he saves the nation. 
And he says, now that I have delivered you and I have called you, you're my chosen nation, you are to live in this way. This is the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments that has been laid out. Sometimes we get the idea, well, God gave the Old in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments as a way of salvation. No. He gave the Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses as a way of life for those who have already been saved, those who've already been delivered, his covenant people, his, his corporate nation. Because he saved them, not because of anything they did, but because of his grace and mercy, they were called to live in a certain way. Yet they didn't. Just as God saves us, not by our own works, not by anything that we do, but by his own grace and mercy, he saves us. He still calls us to what? As it says in First Peter, be holy as I am holy, which is what? Guess what? A quotation from Leviticus, part of the law of Moses. Righteous living always follows gracious salvation. And the nation here has failed. And now they are reaping the consequences of their sin. And Daniel is crying out before God. He adores God. He confesses his sin, saying, Lord, we know that we have sinned against you. When's the last time that you have sat down and prayed and confessed your sin to God? Just like we often skip over adoration, I say far quicker, we skip over our own confession of sin. When we come to God, do you confess sin? You say, Lord, please forgive me of my anger. Lord, please forgive me of my impatience and my, my short words. Please forgive me of my impure thoughts, of my wrong heart attitudes. Lord, please forgive me of sins that I don't even realize that I've committed, right? Lord, show me my sin. Help me fight my sin. Far too often, we, we don't like to think of that. But somebody who is a growing believer in Jesus Christ, somebody who is a faithful disciple will start to see their sin more and more and will come to love the grace of Jesus Christ more and more. It's this, it's this crazy thing. The more you grow in your maturity in Jesus Christ, the more you realize how sinful you are and how your, your wicked heart is, is pulling you. Your sin nature is at work in you and, and the, the battle's all the more real. The more you grow in grace in Jesus Christ, the more you realize your own wickedness and the more the cross of Christ means to you. It is good and right and necessary for us. When we go about without confession, the relationship with God is there, but the fellowship is broken. God's never going to forsake a true believer in Jesus Christ, but that, that fellowship is broken. There's going to be something there that's going to be off and, and it, it's going to be not as healthy as it should be. The relationship doesn't change, but our fellowship does. But confession of sin and seeing sin in our lives redeems that fellowship. And as we've grown our walk in Christ, we see our sin more. We confess quickly and we love Jesus all the more because of it. So Daniel cries out. He adores God. He confesses our sin. And then lastly, we ask for him to work, or supplication. We bring our requests. Often we, we jump here. We jump to say, Lord, do this for me. You think of the Lord's Prayer, what Jesus lays out, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That, that's an adoration, right? 
Now I'm totally blanking here on the rest of it. <laughs> we could, uh, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? Give us our day, our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's only one really small phrase in there of supplication. Give us, our, give us this day our daily bread. And then forgive us our trespasses. It's the confession of sin. We ask for God to work. This pattern that Daniel lays out is adoration, confession, and it ends with supplication or asking God to work. And Daniel says this in verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city of Jerusalem. This is a, a, a reference to the nation itself, Jerusalem. Your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. He's saying, please grant us mercy. Turn your anger away. For your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Meaning, we've become a mockery. God, your chosen nation has fallen. And other nations are mocking the Jews. Where's your God? <laughs> yeah, you're so holy and righteous. And yet, look at your situation. Verse 17, now therefore, O our God, Listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon our sanctuary, which is desolate. Daniel asked God to listen to his prayer and to his pleas for mercy. And for his own sake, Daniel's ultimate desire is for God's will to be done and God's glory to be known. Even in asking for mercy and grace that they would be able to go back to the promised land, his reasoning at the heart, isn't selfish, but it's for God's name and God's glory. Verse 18, oh my God, incline your ear and, and hear, open your eyes and see the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Daniel, again and again, in his supplication, in his request, is saying, God, we want you to be glorified in us. And if it be your will, that we would be able to return to Jerusalem, to your holy city, for your great name, because of your great mercy. And then he says this, I love how he ends it. Verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. This repetition is the idea of this earnest plea. Hear, forgive, and act. Delay not. Why? For your own sake, O my God. Because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel's supplication before God is for them to be able to return to the city of Jerusalem, for the nation to be brought back from exile. He's requesting mercy and grace, but it's on the basis of who God is and his righteousness and his plan. For the sake of God's name, for the sake of God's city, for the sake of his people called by his name. As much as Daniel's concerned for himself and his countrymen, he's more concerned with the reputation of God. That God would get the glory among all nations. When we ask God for things, as we think of prayer, yes, we cast our cares upon God. James says we, we have not because we ask not. Jesus says, ask and you shall receive. It's, it's that idea of coming to God boldly. But we must temper that with the fact that as we are followers of Jesus Christ and we ask God and we request things, we always couch it in the understanding of not my will, but your will be done. Lord, we want these things. We 
want this situation to be resolved because it's, it's hurting us or it's difficult or whatever it may be. But yet, Lord, we want you ultimately to be glorified through this. So if that's a resolution to it, great. If it's not, and it's your grace to strengthen and give us endurance through them, Lord, let it be. Our requests must always be with the understanding that it's not our will, but God's will be done. It's about his glory, not our own. God is not a cosmic genie or grandfather, but one who delights in blessing his children by bringing them joy as he gets the glory. I've been reading a book and the author has been describing this idea that God is all about himself. Now, if we said that about any one of us, that would be a terrible thing. But not when we're talking about God. God is glorified in himself. God wants himself to get the glory. And you might think, well, where does that leave us? Well, what the amazing thing is, is that God wants to bring himself glory because he is God and he is deserving of that. But as his children... God gets glory when we are satisfied and joyful in him. Therefore, God wants to receive all the glory. And how does he do that in us? When we ourselves are joyful and satisfied in Christ, and therefore we bring him glory. It's this amazing thing that, that God is all about himself, but in being about, all him, being about himself, that overflows in his love and his blessings towards us. Some of these things overlap with what we want. <laughs> and sometimes they may be, in fact, the opposite. We want this, but yet this is what God is working in us to bring us the most joy and Him the most glory. So when we come to God and bring our requests, we say, Lord, this is what's on our heart. This is our desire. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And let me be satisfied and joyful in what you have for me. As Daniel searched God's word, as he found this prophecy and as he cried out in adoration and confession and supplication, he humbly requests that God, the author of this prophecy, would bring it about. The circumstances of our lives are vastly different than 2,500 years ago for Daniel, but the pattern is applicable and necessary for us. We look at the world around us and we say, Lord, how long? Or we bemoan what's going on. We may look at our lives and ask why it is this way. Why is our life playing out the way it is? We look at our wants and we think we deserve much more. Yet we do not look at the one who has given the direction for our lives. The one who has given his own son for our lives. We don't look to the one who can actually do something about it. And we don't like to look to God sometimes because in doing so we realize how sinful we are. Or we realize as we bring our requests to God that our wants are not what he wants. But yet, as we come to God, we adore him, we confess our sin, and we bring our requests. In doing so, we grow in fellowship and communion with God. We grow in our understanding of who God is and who we are. And we realize more and more that it's not about us, but it's about him. And we say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Not my wants, but your wants be done. And may your joy be my joy. And may that bring you honor and glory.
May we adore God for who he is. May we confess our sin to God in light of who he is. And may we humbly ask him to work because of who he is. For the one who is sovereign over all nations and all kings is the one who is sovereign over your life. Is the one who can do something about it. So let's adore him. Let's confess our sin to him. And let's bring our needs before him. And we will find him faithful. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to come to you to look at this pattern of Daniel crying out to you. You are the one sovereign over all nations. You hear us. You know us. You love us. And you want what's best for us, even when we may not know what that is. Lord, we pray now as we come to the table to be reminded of the death of Christ, a wonderful opportunity to confess sin and to be reminded of what you've given us, our greatest need in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.